0: Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. Psalm 70. And I love the added theme for this one. An urgent prayer for help. It can be your prayer when you're short on time and long on need. Author is David asking God to remember him and it's only five verses. Please God rescue me. Come quickly Lord and help me. May those who try to kill me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame for they said aha we've got him now but May all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, God is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Please hurry to my aid, O God. You are my helper and my savior. O Lord, do not delay. I'll read one comment on this. This short psalm, similar in content to Psalm 40, 13 to 17 was David's plea for God to come quickly with his help, yet even in his moment of panic, he did not forget to praise. Praise is important because it helps us remember who God is. Often our prayers are filled with requests for ourselves and others, and we forget to thank God for what he has done and to worship him for who he is. Don't take God for granted and treat him as a vending machine. Even when David was afraid, He praised God. And I feel like since it's only five verses, I'm going to read it a second time. Please, God, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. May those who try to kill me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame, for they said, aha, we got him now. But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, God is great, but as for me, I am poor and needy. Please hurry to my aid, O God. You are my helper and my savior, O Lord, do not delay. We're going to finish out Proverbs chapter 18, starting in verse 13 to the end. 13, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Amen. Here, here. Not that I, I never, I never do that. Sure, fourteen. The human spirit can endure a sick body, but who can bear a crushed spirit? Ooh, the human spirit can endure a sick body. But who can bear a crushed spirit? Hmm. had to think on that for a second. I love it. Verse 15. Intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. Giving a gift can open doors. It gives access to important people. Mm. Solomon's practical. He knows how the world works. Give gifts and get access to the people who can make things happen. Verse 17, the first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. That's why it's always best to hear both sides of a story before making up your mind, right? The problem is sometimes the other person isn't around to give their side of the story. Hence why gossip is so destructive as well, right? I'm going to read a comment here. This was written about verses 13, 15, and 17. These concise statements give three basic principles for making sound decisions. One, get the facts before answering. Two, be open to new ideas. And three, make sure you hear both sides of a story before judging. All three principles center around seeking additional information. This is difficult work, but the only alternative is prejudice. Judging before getting the facts. So let's read what the scripture actually said in those three verses one more time. 13. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. 15. Intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. And 17. The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. I like it. Moving on. Verse 18 flipping a coin can end arguments it settles disputes between powerful opponents a footnote here says the flipping a coin could also be translated casting lots I think it's probably important to remember that as I understand it anyway in this culture casting lots flipping cones throwing coins throwing bones etc was a way of de- of um, uh, determining God's will, so they would have seen it as God has decided. Therefore, the dispute is settled. Verse 19, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Wise words satisfy like a good meal. The right words bring satisfaction. Hmm, there is a difference As this is calling out between wise words and right words, or are they one and the same? Wise words satisfy like a good meal. The right words bring satisfaction. I guess they're calling it one and the same. Wise words are the right words, a good meal, and satisfaction. But sometimes I feel like the wise words aren't really what people want to hear. And wise words are not just what's right, but also given at the right time. Verse 21, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. See also verses 13, 15, and 17. Verse 22, the man who finds a wife finds a treasure and he receives favor from the Lord. hmm assuming she's a good wife, one who is God-fearing and not consumed in selfishness. Verse 23, the poor plead for mercy, the rich answer with insults. Ouch. And the last verse of chapter 18, there are friends, friends is in quotes, there are quote-unquote friends who destroy each other. But a real friend sticks closer than a brother. In the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, we're in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, Paul essentially gives the Galatian church his resume, so to speak, that the message he is preaching came from Christ directly, he didn't need the apostles' authority to preach it, because you can't get higher authority than Christ himself, and it ended stating that he was in Syria and Cilicia for a time, and still, and this is chapter 1 verse 22, and still the Christians in the churches in Judea didn't know me personally, all they knew is that people were saying The one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Chapter two. Then 14 years later, so fast forward 14 years. I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. And remember Paul, his special mission is to non-Jews or the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing and they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to persevere Or, excuse me, we wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, the reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. (laughs) Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. they encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on uh, helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised, but afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocr- hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, (laughs) so much for saving face, he just calls them out in front of everybody. I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know that a person, and sinners isn't. Kind of quotes there, not quote unquote sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. I'm going to read this section again where he calls them out. So Peter Uh, Was eating with Gentiles and then decided he wouldn't because they weren't circumcised. He wanted the Gentiles who were following Christ to be circumcised except Christ had done away with all of that. That wasn't necessary anymore That was just him kind of clinging on to a tradition in order to people please the Jewish Christians So Paul calls him out on it Says, you know, you don't have to hold on to that anymore. What are you doing? you and I are Jews by birth not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, which is why we don't have to hold on to that anymore. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not not because we have obeyed the law, saying they're not saved by obeying the law and neither are we, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. In other words... It sounds to me like he's saying instead of clinging to living by the letter of the law and to traditions and this and that and ABC, you know, through Z of the requirements, instead have that relationship and be guided by him directly. Verse 20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It no long, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. It was really hard for me to read that scripture without singing the song in my head. I've been crucified with Christ nevertheless, I live late in the night, but Christ liveth in me. Anyway, jumping into the commentary here, if we rewind back to verse 2. When he's introducing his next uh, step here, where he starts his mission, says, I went there before because God revealed to me that I should go. Commentary says, God told Paul through revelation to confer with the church leaders in Jerusalem about the message he was preaching to the Gentiles. So they would understand and approve of what he was doing. The essence of Paul's message to both Jews and Gentiles, was that God's salvation is offered to all people, regardless of race, sex, nationality, wealth, social standing, education level, or anything else. Anyone can be forgiven by trusting in Christ. See Romans 10, 8 through 13. Then in verse 3 through 5, he talks about his companion, Uh, Titus, they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even the question came up because, or only because of some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And here's what's interesting. The comment uh, author writes, When Paul took Titus, a Greek Christian, to Jerusalem, the Judaizers, those false Christians, uh, said that Titus should be circumcised. Paul adamantly refused to give in to their demands. The apostles agreed the circumcision was an unnecessary rite for Gentile converts. Several years later, Paul circumcised Timothy, another Greek Christian, but Timothy was half Jewish. Paul did not deny Jews the right to be circumcised. He was simply saying that Gentiles should not be asked to become Jews before becoming Christians. So you're no longer slaves to the law, but if by your heritage, as a part of their Jewish heritage, a Jew wants to be circumcised, that's fine, but someone who's a Gentile Don't try to force them to become a Jew in order to follow Christ. That's where he really uh, advocated against. Here's a little historical context tidbit. Verse 11. Let me find it here. Okay. Uh, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to pose him to his face. So when he refers to Antioch, this is Antioch of Syria. Distinguished from Antioch of Poseida. Uh, Antioch of Syria, which he's referring to here, is a major trade center in the ancient world. Heavily populated by Greeks, it eventually became a strong Christian center. In Antioch, the believers were first called Christians. See, Acts eleven twenty six. 26. Antioch of Syria became the headquarters for the Gentile church and was Paul's base of operations. Okay, I'm going to read this comment about this big confrontation between Paul and Peter. And I always see Paul and Peter as like these two very strong-willed men with no filters. You know, they just say whatever. can come out rather bluntly sometimes. Particularly Paul. Uh, Peter, it's usually him sticking his foot in his mouth. So, when... The issue happens between them, right? Here, here's what the authors write. The Judaizers accused Paul of watering down the good news to make it easier for Gentiles to accept, while Paul accused the Judaizers of nullifying the truth of the good news by adding conditions to it. The basis of salvation was the issue. Is salvation through Christ alone, or does it come through Christ in adherence to the law? The argument came to a climax when Peter, Paul, and the Judaizers, and some Gentile Christians all gathered together in Antioch to share a meal. Peter probably thought that by staying away from the Gentiles, he was promoting harmony. He did not want to offend James and the Jewish Christians. James had a very prominent position and would later preside over the Jerusalem Council, but Paul charged that Peter's action violated the good news, which is the whole whole of their entire mission work is this this message that Christ has come to save everyone right so Paul's like you're violating the main reason we're doing this by joining the Judaizers Peter was supporting their claim that Christ was not sufficient for salvation compromise is an important element in getting along with others but we should never compromise the truth of God's word If we feel we have to change our Christian beliefs to match those of our companions, we are on dangerous ground. And that was their key message there. So my Bible has this nice little chart about do we have to obey Old Testament laws? And it breaks them into three categories. The first is ceremonial law. It says this kind of law relate specifically to Israel's worship. And you can see an example in Leviticus 1, 1 through 13. Its primary purpose was to point forward to Jesus Christ. Therefore, these laws were no longer necessary after Jesus' death and resurrection. While we are no longer bound by ceremonial laws, the principles behind them to worship and love a holy God still apply. The Jewish Christians often accused the Gentile Christians Of violating the ceremonial law. The next is civil law. This type of law dictated Israel's daily living. See Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 11 for an example. Because modern society and culture are so radically different, some of these guidelines cannot be followed specifically. But the principles behind the command should guide our conduct. At times, Paul asked Gentile Christians to follow some of these laws not because they had to, but in order to promote unity. moral law. This sort of law is the direct command of God. For example, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 21 through 17. It requires strict obedience. It reveals the nature and will of God and and it still applies to us today. We are to obey this moral law, not to obtain salvation, but to live in ways pleasing to God. I guess examples of these moral laws would be Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't falsely accuse, do love the Lord your God with all your heart, do love your neighbor as yourself, do take care of the widows and the orphans, right? Avoiding wrong and doing right isn't what saves us because none of us can be that perfectly consistent. It is Christ who saves us. But we try our best to avoid wrong and do right because Christ has saved us.